do that. Uh, we had some missionaries staying with us this uh, weekend. And uh, Liz, one of the missionaries, a good friend of ours, she woke up in the morning on Saturday. She said she looked out of the window, out of our house, and, uh, and she said, uh, I saw something incredible. She said, I saw a circle of Christians in the parking lot praying for the neighborhood. Uh, and it was you. You were the Christians praying for the neighborhood. So I just, it was just great. It was great to see that our people came out to the Fall Fest and, and prayed and looked for opportunities to share the gospel and served people in our community. So I want to commend you. And uh, October is not Congregation Appreciation Month, but nevertheless, here is your appreciation from me. It makes me very happy as a pastor and proud of being your pastor to see you being missional and reaching your neighbors and giving up your time and efforts to do that. So I wanted to make sure I, I communicate that verbally because I feel that in my heart. Let's pray that God would add a blessing to the preaching of his word. Father, we thank you that you communicate with us through the scriptures. We thank you that we can understand your word through the Holy Spirit and that we can apply your word to our lives and live joyfully and freely as your children. We pray that your Spirit would come and do His work among us. Those who have not encountered Jesus yet, I ask that He would show up through the pages and the words of your book and that people would see Him as, as real and as beautiful and as their Savior. And those of us who are Christians who are maybe struggling with doubt today or struggling with apathy, I pray that you would correct us. I pray that you would encourage us. I pray that your Word will come to us in power and in grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, let's look at Esther chapter 6. We've been going through the book of Esther this fall, and uh, most of you know the story. The Jews are in danger. The king has signed an edict to annihilate all the Jews on a specific date. The date has been set. Esther is the queen. She is Jewish, but nobody knows that she is Jewish. And so she faces this dilemma. Does she go to the king, endanger her own life with the possibility of saving her people? Or does she kind of keep it to herself and uh, hope everything works out for her people? Well, she steps up and she's courageous. She goes to the king. The king allows her to speak to him. And we're in the part of the story where she is about to plead on behalf of the people. So she sets a banquet, invites the king, and uh, she, in the next chapter she's going to plead for her people. In this chapter, however, we read about Haman, the enemy of the Jews, the villain of the story. He is tremendously angry with Mordecai, a Jewish official in the court. Mordecai does not bow to him. He does not acknowledge him as an important person that Haman is. And that just really bothers Haman. He's angry. He's bitter. And he goes to the king to ask for permission to execute Mordecai to kill him. He had built a gallows in his backyard. So that's where we are in the story. Let's read and let's specifically focus on Haman as we look at this text. On that night the king could not sleep and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bixana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, 
Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. Let the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Well, a tremendous reversal of fortunes here. Haman comes in ready to ask for Mordecai's head and instead the king honors Mordecai because Mordecai had saved his life about five years earlier and everybody forgot about it. In God's providence, God reminds the king, he honors Mordecai and sets Haman's plan in peril. So that's where we're on the text. What I'd like to, uh, to look at is, is look into Haman's heart, which is also our own heart. Let's look at Haman's internal struggle here. Uh, you will, once we go through the text, you will see how it all ties together. Uh, what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at what Haman wants. First of all, what his deepest desire is. Secondly, why he can't get it. And lastly, how we can receive it. What Haman and we want, why we can't get it, and how we can receive it. That's our outline. So let's look at what he wants. Our text provides an unusually clear view into the human heart. When the king asks, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman foolishly assumes that the king is talking about him. What Haman answers, what he says, reveals his deepest desire. Deepest desire. Remember, this is the, the emperor. This is the king, the most powerful person in the world probably at the time who tells his subject, what would you like me to do? Name anything you want, I will give it to you. What, is, what do you really want? That's where Haman finds himself. In his mind, he's thinking, the king is addressing him. And this is what Haman says. He says, I would like to get royal robes that you wore, the king, you wore them. I'd like to get your horse that you had ridden on, the victory horse of the conquering king. 
And I'd like your best people, your noblest, most noble officials to dress me and to put me on the horse and to parade me around the city proclaiming that the king loves me, that the king praises me, that the king delights to honor me. That's Haman's deepest desire. He wants to be publicly praised by the king. He wants everybody to know that the king praises and honors him. That is our deepest desire too, isn't it? Don't we all want to be praised and affirmed and approved of and validated by someone else, by someone of value, someone that is praiseworthy himself or herself? Let me suggest this to you. And hopefully you will agree with me, especially as we go on to look at this text and look at our lives. I think we are all driven by this overpowering need to be acknowledged and appreciated and valued and accepted and praised. I think all of us want, because our deepest desire is the praise of another. Now think about people who stay in certain jobs when they are underpaid, but because their boss acknowledges them and praises them and appreciates them, they will not be looking for another job. They're willing to forego money because they feel appreciated at work. That's, that's huge. Many of us would stick with those jobs even though we're not getting paid as much as we could. Think about people who stay in abusive relationships hoping that they could somehow do what they need to do to get that praise and affirmation of the, of the abuser. So they would, they would be okay with being hurt, some of them on a daily basis, because they're still hoping to get that praise. They're still hoping that somehow they will fulfill their responsibilities and, and they're willing to give in to the manipulations and the pain just so that they can get that, that word of affirmation and acknowledgement and praise. Fear of rejection, for many of us, is our strongest motivation towards success. Many of us are functioning, practically speaking, are functioning because we're trying to prove somebody wrong. There's somebody in our lives who has rejected us and all of our, life, all our lives are now built in, in the way that we will prove them wrong. That we will show them that they were not supposed to reject us, even if they did. This promise of praise of another keeps some of us moral, keeps us abiding by a certain code. For example, if you grew up in a Christian family and if your parents believe that certain things are wrong, many kids, because of the promise of praise from their parents, will not do anything wrong. They will read their Bibles and they will go to church and they will tithe out of their allowance because they want that praise of their parents. They may or may not believe whether you know, it's true or not, but they will do that because they want that affirmation from their parents. For others of us, this, this need for praise will throw us into uncomfortable immorality. It depends on whose praise you're seeking. You see. Some of us, we look around and we look at our peers and maybe it's an, it's an unbelieving spouse or maybe an unbelieving boyfriend or girlfriend, or maybe people at work, maybe your boss, and because you want to please them and you don't want to disappoint them, you will compromise your deepest beliefs. You will do things that you don't believe are true and you should be doing it, but you will do that so you can avoid disappointment from the person you value. 
You place value on that person's opinion and you will do even weird things to please them. So what I'm saying here is that the vast majority of our decisions, big or small, are made in pursuit of the praise of another person. Now we're not all after the praise of the same person, but we are all after someone's praise. There's somebody in your life, multiple people probably, that you're hoping will praise you and affirm you and validate you and acknowledge you and appreciate you. Now let's get a little theological here. Otto Rank, who was a, was a German-Austrian uh, psychiatrist, said that we are all theological animals. We're theological animals, meaning that our problems need to be solved theologically with God. There's something about us that only God can fix. And this is what I think the answer to this need, the reason for this need for praise is for us. If you go to the beginning of the Bible, the first chapter of Genesis, we read God's assessment of his creation. When God created everything, and on, the, on the last day he created man and woman, this is what God says, or what Scripture says about God. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. When God created everything he meant to create, he stepped back and he praised his creation. He validated his creation. He acknowledged his creation. Specifically human beings, because this happens on the sixth day. After he creates Adam and Eve, God steps back and says to them, you are very good. And that echo of the garden is still loud in our hearts. It's still loud. We are still looking for somebody to say, you are very good. Not just good, but you are very good. There's something about you that is just so valuable, and I want to affirm that. Now, God did that for us in the garden. And if we could hear that voice still, no problems. There would be no story of Esther. But because we did something in chapter 3 of Genesis, namely we rejected God's praise, we walked away, Eve thought it was, it was more prudent for her to please the serpent than God. Adam thought it was more prudent for him to please his wife than God. They chose someone else's praise over God's praise, and they walked away, and we walked away. We rejected God. What are we doing now? We simply turn to each other for that praise. The need is still there. The echo of God saying to us, you are very good, is still there. Except now we took God out of the picture. God isn't here. God isn't in our lives. And so because he's not here, we're turning to each other and looking to each other and saying, praise me, praise me. But all of us are frustrated with that because none of us have experienced that deep validation, the deep appreciation by someone else. And the reason is because human beings cannot do that. We are just unable to praise each other to that degree where we will be totally fulfilled. Now, why is that? Why is it that we can't find the, the fulfillment of that need? Why can't we quench that longing for, for praise and value and affirmation? I'm going to give you four reasons. We're going to walk through four reasons. They're all in the text. Why we are constantly frustrated in our need for praise. Number one, human praise is insufficient. It is insufficient, meaning it's not enough. Human praise can never satisfy a heart 
that was designed to be filled with God's praise. You see, you were made a certain way. You were made, your ears were made to hear God speak to you. So when people speak to you, they're not loud enough. They don't know the words to communicate what they want to say. And so for us to expect a human being do as much and do as well as God is foolish. The echo of God's praise in the garden is louder in our hearts than the shouts of tens of thousands of cheering fans. Even if you can, and most of us can't do it, but even if you can gather tens of thousands of people who would, who would cheer you on and praise you, which some people have that, that's not going to be loud enough for us because we're still listening to the echo of the garden. And that's louder in our hearts. This longing for praise can never be quenched by human praise because human praise is of another kind. We're longing for God's praise and we're substituting human praise for it, but it's not sufficient. Now remember in previous chapter, Haman was boasting to his wife and friends that he is the only one invited to feast with the king and the queen. Remember that? He was saying, man, the king gave me so much wealth and all these promotions and I'm the only one in the kingdom who was invited by, by Queen Esther to come and feast with her and the king. There's nobody else, just three of us. The king, the queen, and me. And yet, we go to the next chapter. Now, keep all that in mind. All the praise that he got through that. When the king says, what should the king do for the man whom he delights to honor? Shouldn't have Haman said, well, you've done enough. I, I feel very comfortable with, I know how you feel about me, feel validated and appreciated and, and valued by you. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, I need more. I need your clothes, and I need your horse, and I need your officials to praise me on your behalf. Because it's not enough. Even being included in the inner circle with the queen and the king themselves, it's not enough. It's insufficient. He's always looking for more. He's grasping for more. He thinks that wearing king's clothes and riding king's horse is going to solve it, but it's not. He's going to be looking for something else after that. Now, that's the first reason that human praise is simply insufficient. Secondly, human praise is impermanent. Um, I've alliterated eyes in my outline, so please forgive me. There's going to be weird words here. But human praise is impermanent, meaning it's temporary, it's fleeting. Human praise is just not there all the time. When you're dealing with sinful human beings, rejection is going to be inevitable. Maybe not everyone will reject you, but many will reject you. Many people who used to like you before no longer like you. You know that, right? There's people who thawed the world of you at some point and they no longer care for you at all. Rejection is inevitable. And the greater the amount of praise that you're hoping to receive, the greater the amount of rejection you will receive. Artists, politicians, athletes, all sorts of leaders know this. When you're putting yourself in the position to be praised by many, many will also reject you play football and you do really well one Sunday, you're going to get a lot of praise. But if you don't do as well the next Sunday, you will get a lot of rejection. Most of the people who praise you are now going to reject you. So rejection is real. And we look at, it, at Haman's life and we see that. Haman is praised one day. He's invited to be in this, this private party with the king and the queen. And then the next day, the very next day, literally the next day, he is hanged on the gallows he had built for someone else. So you have the, the highest praise of the king and, and, and the most horrible rejection the next day. 
That's how life works. Those who will praise you today might very well reject you tomorrow. So human praise is just not permanent. It's not steady. It's fleeting. Number three, why human praise can't fill that need for, for validation for us that we all feel. Human praise is inconsistent. What I mean by this is there is a certain hierarchy of praise. Praise of some people is not as important to you as praise of others. Also, praise of some people cannot erase rejection of others. See, everyone might think that you are great except one person. Maybe your parent or maybe your spouse. But that person's opinion will outweigh all of the praise you get from everyone else. Look at Haman. He had the praise of the king, but it didn't matter to him because he did not get the praise of Mordecai. Why? We don't know why. We don't know why Mordecai was so important to Haman. But there was something about Mordecai that Haman just decided that unless I get him to bow down to me or destroy him, just remove him from my life, I'm not going to be happy. When he was talking to his wife and friends in the previous chapter we talked about last week, he said, look at all the promotions, look at all the, the wealth, look at how the, the queen and the king, they love me. And he says, but all of that matters nothing to me. That's his words. Matters nothing to me if Mordecai the Jew does not bow down. So that person's lack of praise canceled out all the praise he got from all the other important people. Why is that? We don't know, but Mordecai was too important to him. Who is that in your life that you think, unless they praise me, unless that person praises me, everything else doesn't matter? Who is that? You all have people like that. It's probably your parents who built up expectations for you. And you may be the very successful person, uh, you know, a really successful person, and you still feel that you are disappointing your parents. And that will spoil your life. You will not feel successful if you know your father or your mother are disappointing you. There's a hierarchy of praise. There are certain people that matter to us more than other people with their praise and their rejections. Now, let me give you this analogy, lest you think I'm talking about things that are not real. I'm going to use pop culture to support my views. Uh, there's, a, there's a football player who I hear is very famous. He plays north of us in the little town in Wisconsin. Aaron Rodgers revealed something very, very interesting in a recent interview. Now, you know that he's very successful, right? Very wealthy. He's considered one of the best football players. He, he does interesting commercials that people seem to enjoy and buy products that he endorses. By all accounts, he should not have any problems in life, right? Well, he gave this interview and he remembered something that happened years ago. But he remembered it so vividly, which makes me think that's still rather important to him. Let me, let me just, in his own words, uh, explain to you what, what he went through. He, he's looking back to his college career, and he's looking at a class he took where he wrote a paper and got a poor grade on the paper. This is in college. It was a silly class. It was like food appreciation or something like that. And uh, got a, how do you get a bad grade on a food appreciation paper? I don't know. So he did. And, and so he went to the professor to ask her if he could rewrite the paper, which isn't a big deal. Lots of students do that. So he went to her office, and this is what happened. He says, She basically ripped me apart and said that athletes always want stuff given to them. 
that I wasn't going to be able to rewrite my paper, and on and on and on. She went into this tirade about athletes and entitlements and whatnot. She basically picked on the wrong person in the class because I was probably the best student out of the 11 football players in there. I was second team all academic at Cal. To get to the best part of the story, she's looking at me, condescending, talking down to me, and she says, what do you want to do with yourself? I said, I want to play in the NFL. She laughed. She laughed at me, he says. It was a condescending laugh. And she said, you'll never make it. You'll get hurt. You'll need your education. And you're not going to make it through school here. I said, okay. I don't agree with any of that. I just want to tell this to you today. So now, he's given an interview to, to a journalist, but he's addressing the teacher, notice. He says, I just want to tell this to you today. Thank you for adding to that, to that chip on my shoulder, and I hope that you're a fan. Now, why does Rogers remember this conversation so vividly? Is it not enough that he won a Super Bowl and he has all the money and fame in the world? Why is he worrying about some, some old professor in college who, I don't know, he's probably the only conversation he had with her. Why does it matter to him? Somehow, that one conversation, that one rejection, is so important to him, he's still going back to it and talking about it years and years later. And it drove him to success. He used it as motivation to succeed. The need for praise that was not fulfilled in that class moved him to become successful. Human hearts are weird, right? Somebody you should not really care about says something, and that drives you in life, and you, you accomplish great things because of that rejection. Is there a rejection in your life like that? Is there something in your life that you're, trying to, you're still trying to, to grapple with, with all your success, with everything you've done in life, you're still worried about that person who said something 20 years ago? Maybe your parent? Is there something? Is there something you're just reacting to? And all your life is based on, on this drive to prove them wrong. They don't care. They probably don't remember what they said. But man, it affected you. Now, last point on why human praise is implausible, or why it doesn't work. It's implausible, meaning that it doesn't ring true to us. Most of us have a very difficult time believing the praise we get. It doesn't just it doesn't seem to be true. We're always suspicious of it. Are you like me when somebody compliments you? You don't just say, thank you, you're right, good job noticing. But in fact, you say, thank you, nice effort, but we all know you're wrong. That's not true. I didn't really do that well. I'm not really a good person. I'm not the successful. And you're trying to argue with them, at least internally, with their argument, with their compliment. I think it happens with a lot of people. We just can't take a compliment. Why? Because inside, we feel that it's not true. They think it's true, but I don't feel that it's true. When a Christian philosopher and a psychologist, Robert Roberts, he's very insightful when he says that we live with the dreadful contradiction lying drugged and groggy in our bosoms, the need to be heroes and the fact of being worms. The need to be heroes and the fact of being worms. Yes, other people may think you're a hero, but in your heart, you know that you're not. 
you know you're just a worm. You're just useless. And so when somebody praises you, as much as they might believe it, most of us don't. Let me uh, give you another example of that. This, is, this comes from Henry Nowen, who's a Christian writer. And he's dealt with a lot of those kind of issues himself and also with others. This is how he describes it. He says, Beneath much human assertiveness, competitiveness and rivalry, beneath much self-confidence and even arrogance, there is often a very insecure heart, much less sure of, sure of itself than outward behavior would lead one to believe. I have often been shocked to discover that men and women with obvious talents and with many rewards for their accomplishments have so many doubts about their own goodness. Instead of experiencing their outward successes as a sign of their inner beauty, they live them as a cover-up cover up for their sense of personal worthlessness. Not a few have said to me, if people only knew what goes on in my innermost self, they would stop with their applause and praise. I vividly remember talking with a young man loved and admired by everyone who knew him. He told me how a small critical remark from one of his friends had thrown him into an abyss of depression. As he spoke, tears streamed from his eyes and his body twisted in anguish. He felt that his friend had broken through his wall of defenses and had seen him as he really was an ugly hypocrite, a despicable man beneath his gleaming armor. As I heard his story, I realized what an unhappy life he had lived, even though the people around him had envied him for his gifts. For years he had walked around with the inner questions, does anyone really love me? Does anyone really care? And every time he had climbed a little higher on the ladder of success, he had thought, this is not who I really am. One day, everything will come crashing down and then people will see that I am no good. I wonder if that was the case with Haman. I wonder that in spite of all the praise he got from the king, when Mordecai refused to bow to him, he realized, that's who I really am. I really am worthless. I'm really... I really am useless. I don't deserve any praise. The king is just deceived. He doesn't know me. But Mordecai knows me. And he is exposed to who I really am. I'm not a hero. I'm a worm. I wonder if that's what happened with him. I wonder if that's what's happening with us. When somebody praises you, you say, you just don't know me. Once you get to know me, you will know that I am worthless, that I am no good. Remember what God said in the garden. You are very good. Remember what our heart says, you're no good. Now, what do we do? What do we do with this? We have this overpowering drive for praise. We want praise. We want somebody to validate us and to appreciate us and to acknowledge who we are, that we are good. And yet, we turn to all these people around us and we are constantly frustrated because they cannot praise us enough. They cannot praise us uh, uh, enough times. They cannot praise us so that it pleases us, so that it reflects who we really are. So what do we do? Well, being a minister as I am, of course, my answer is going to be God, right? I'm going to turn you to God. I'm going to say that praise that you want is not through human beings, but it is through God. What you need to hear 
is God loudly speaking like he did in the garden that you are very good. What you need is for God who is an eternal being to eternally praise you. What you need is God saying that he loves you. That God appreciates you. Because he is the most important person in the world. I think we'll be able to handle some rejection if we know that God accepts us. Right? That's the solution. Except that it's not. Because why would God praise us? It would be great if God praised us. It was great for Adam and Eve before they sinned. But why would God praise us now? We know there were worms. We know that. God is not deceived. He's not fooled. We can't trick him into thinking we're heroes and he should praise us. He knows we're worms. He knows that. Because we know that too. So why would he praise us? Why would this eternal, important being praise us and validate us and acknowledge us and approve us? Well, he really shouldn't. But in the Gospel, he does. You see, Haman was on the right track. He knew that he needed the praise of a king. It's just that he happened to have the wrong king. We need a different king. We need a better king. We need God to praise us. But how will he praise us? Because we are worthless. We turn to Jesus. And in the Gospel, we find that contradiction resolved. If you read the New Testament, there are many passages in the New Testament that talk about, about putting on the Lord Jesus, about being dressed in Jesus, about connecting with Jesus through faith in such a way that we become one with Jesus. The reason it's important is because Jesus is the only human being, also completely God, but the only human being that God delights to honor. Think about Jesus a perfect person, accomplished, used, he's used to the praise of the Father continuously. Remember those passages in the Gospels where uh, during the baptism of Jesus and during the transfiguration when this voice of the Father comes down from heaven and the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's the only human being that God is well pleased with. But he is completely pleased with Jesus. And so somehow the solution is for us to connect with Jesus to such an extent that God starts seeing us as Jesus. And that's exactly what happens through the Gospel. When Jesus came to live with us, he lived a perfect life. And his righteousness, his perfection, is now freely given to us. When Jesus died, he died for the worms that we are. But he died as a hero. And now we can be made heroes in Jesus. When Jesus rose from the dead, that victory now applies to us. We can hold on to him and accept that victory and experience that victory over death and sin and the devil as if we were the heroes that he is. There's something weird that happens in the gospel where we identify with Jesus to such an extent that we become him in God's eyes. He becomes sin for our sake. We become righteousness for his sake. The image, the scriptural image of that change is taking his clothes and putting them on. Or in our text, riding his victory horse. What happens to every Christian is that God comes in and he says, I'm going to take Jesus' royal clothes. I'm going to put them on you. 
I'm going to take Jesus' royal horse and you're going to ride it. And you're going to be paraded around the city and everybody will know that God loves you, that God accepts you, that God thinks you are very good in Jesus. Because Jesus is very good. When I think about my job as a pastor, I think I can fairly summarize it this way. My job is to get the clothes of Jesus, to put them on you, to get the horse of Jesus, to put you on the horse, and to be that, that noble official who parades you around town and screams at everybody and proclaims to everybody, this is what is done to the people that God delights to honor. That's the job of the minister, is to get you there. I hope you're there. I hope some of you are. I hope if you're not there, you want to be there. Because you will not ever be satisfied with human praise. But God wants to speak to you today through Jesus. God wants to tell you through Jesus that you are very good because Jesus is very good. You've been restored in Him. And even though you feel that you're a worm, you really are a hero in God's eyes because of Jesus. Because Jesus is our hero.